Yeah. So if you had basically. Let's do that one. Yeah. So what would you send? An emoji or a GIF to our CEO? It'd be a GIF and it would be snarky as hell. I just don't know what it would be off the top <laughs> I was of my say, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll maybe, I'll, I'll save my response for the actual uh, thing if we want to actually use that one, but. Sure, yeah. dive right in. I, I, so off the top of my head, just because I haven't been working here very long, I'm going to just be super creepy and it would just be like a little GIF that's just like a person like, like peeking out from somewhere no context, no words, just really weird. <laughs> but I, I mean, that. I love how you're like, if diamond. I'm into it, like, yeah. don't send like the weird smiley face that you're like, what does this no. mean? I like it. Sleep I like creepy. it. <laughs> uh, so I, I would say if it was an emoji for me, it would almost always be just the thumbs up because <clears throat> we just kind of drive by drop information in the, in the, teams chat all the time and most of the time it's just acknowledgement good i got it um but for whatever reason i was looking back and my last gif was one that says whoopsie so i don't know what i sent but <laughs> i screwed up <laughs> yeah. I that one even for no context just throwing that one out there being like get ready to panic yeah I know. I think if, I'd have to find something knowing that he likes 80s movies and Back to the Future. I'm like, I think I'd find like a good Back to the Future one that works in multiple contexts to be like, choose your adventure. It's Back to the Future. Mm-hmm. So I'm sure I'll be looking on the side, not multitasking during this podcast and going, I'm going to find one. I'm going to put it in the chat. You got if, one, uh, Yeah, if I had to send Kyle a uh, emoji, it'd probably be like a thumbs up or a heart or something like that, you know, is a thumbs up usually because he's asking me something and then heart because I'm super appreciative, right? Uh, There's been a couple great mentors uh, for myself here at CIT. Kyle's one of them. Now, if the question was to the COO, it'd Mm. definitely be the middle finger. uh, Just (laughs) (laughs) Uh, for those that are listening, that is my boss. So that took a turn. (laughs) Yeah. Because we joke around all the time. So. It could be a hard two, but might be I would say paired with me, another emoji. Mine would be the blue heart with like a smiley face and a hug because I just had a correspondence uh, via email with Kyle about Autism Speaks and how we're going to then continue on with our corporate charity of some things coming down um, a little bit later this year. So I was like, yay, super excited. So that was that was my thing. Love it. Love the pug. We got a wide range. <laughs> the the sweet, the good, the bad, the ugly of uh, uh, information <laughs> for Kyle. And uh, after this podcast, we'll all have to just send him with no context all of this stuff and see what he says. Um, but today on our Tech for Business podcast, we don't have Kyle, but we do have Todd and Nate. Todd, our COO and CISO, and Nate, our Director of Cybersecurity. And we're discussing privileged access management, specifically um, for banks. And it seems like a really obvious question, but I'd like to start with why a financial institution would need a PAM, or maybe just a quick, what is it? How do you want to kick off what it is and I can maybe start talking about why? 
Sure. Yeah. So um, as people may or may not be aware, the way Windows and networking was initially set up was for the most part, everybody started out with um, administrative access and which means you've got the keys to the kingdom. You can do whatever you can install your own software. You can make updates, et cetera. Somewhere along the line, Microsoft put in um, the UAC. UAC. And which was the annoying box that pops up and says, are you sure you want to make that change? And um, so that was kind of the interim of don't just randomly click yes on everything. And as the world has continued to progress and the the threats in the world, especially for cybersecurity, have increased, what you're starting to see is those privileges are being abused and that whether it's getting ransomware installed or something along those lines. And so that's where privilege access management comes in. It's the tool sets that allow you to go through a process and start to restrict the amount of access that individuals have. Most compliance industries use the phrase least privilege, which means you have the absolute minimum access you need to complete your job. That's the concept. Most people really don't comply with it, but a tool like a, a PAM will help you achieve that. Yeah, and specifically in the banking industry, um, you know, we are seeing, you know, the auditors saying, have you removed a local administrator from all of your users, uh, right? Uh, I'm not going to go too deep here, but there are some pretty critical attack paths that are used um, paired with bad practices from IT administrators that can quickly lead to an account, uh, or sorry, an organization level compromise all the way up to the highest level permissions, which tends to be your domain admin, your enterprise admin. So the danger that any organization faces, not just the banks, but um, yeah, is that we tend to see IT administrators using domain admin for desktop support as well. But that's extremely dangerous. Microsoft doesn't always recommend that, right? The, the domain admin should only be used for your top-level servers. Um, when a user has local admin, what we see is when that IT admin logs in on that workstation, their password is cached or kind of temporarily held on that device. And so then when someone has local admin, if a threat actor gets onto that device, they can then take that and log right into the servers without ever having to crack a password. It's called pass the hash. That's the most technical I'll get uh, today, but it is a very, very dangerous exploit that we see uh, fairly regularly. It's And then it's also attempted, um, and we see that in Sentinel-1 from time to time as well. So it, by removing that local admin, you're going to be hitting what the auditors are asking for, but also you're reducing some very, very critical um, security exploits that are commonly attacked um, right off the bat when trying to gain elevated permissions within the organization. So, um, so I wanted to hit two points off of that. One is I wanted to clarify: for the most part, when we're working with banks, they do tend to be in the small to mid-size area. Um, that doesn't mean that these tools don't extend into the enterprise because they can. Um, so I just kind of want to clarify that. So the vast majority of this conversation will re revolve around that. Um, as we were talking about the need for access and whatnot, there is a lot of stuff that happens in a network that does require that administrative access. And I mentioned it right at the beginning is sometimes it's installing a tool or it's installing an update or something along those lines. And where tools like 
privilege access management come into play is it has the ability to automate some of these tools. So when we take away the administrative access, we still have a tool that says, let's say my marketing team is on here, so this will be a great example. My marketing team wants to update the Adobe suite. Well, instead of having to reach out to the network administrator, they can just say, yes, I want to do the update. It'll go compare the MD5 hash against a known good one and says, is this really the update? Yep, all good. Automatically apply for it. And I can do that across a network. I can do it across a company or individual, et cetera. Um, so it gives you a lot of flexibility, a lot of automation, and then removes the friction, which we talk about often on a lot of our podcasts, but still gives us high security value. Yep. Yeah. And one of the things that come to mind as well is um, there's PAM solutions out there today that it, you have to approve every single update, um, which is not the best user experience. So, for example, if Chrome has an update or Adobe has an update, right? Todd mentioned it does compare against the MD5 hash. And if it's not there, because, again, it's an update, there's a new hash value, you have to reapprove it. Um, better solutions today will also take a look at whether or not the update is signed by that publisher already. And so even if it is an update, but it's still digitally signed that to be valid from them, it'll automatically apply the same update without any additional approval. So it, uh, this is where once you start taking a look at some of these PAM solutions, it really becomes powerful on time savings and administrative burden for the IT staff. Um, so oftentimes we see IT staff is already stretched thin. The last thing that they want to do is apply a new security product in the environment because it's going to require more work for them. These tools are designed to really reduce that friction. And then as we're talking about rolling it out across your organization, there are solutions that are free but they are very intensive on the labor to get it set up. And so again, time is money. And so these tools do have ways to automatically um, categorize and inventory the software that is installed already within the environment and then dynamically build policies to reduce that uh, internal labor and that's really where we start seeing things like ROI discussions coming into play, saving the IT teams, and then also trying to really elevate the security of the organization as well. So, um, <clears throat> one housekeeping item I, I realized both Nate and I threw out MD5 and in the hash, and it probably doesn't mean a darn thing to most people. Um, it, it's basically the nerdy tech portion of data integrity. So when there's a file out there, this is kind of the reference we use to say, is this valid? Does, did this come from the place I think it should? Um, so I was sorry gonna, about that. I was going to give you crap about using MD5 because the new one is <laughs> SHA-1 or SHA-2, but uh, we won't go down there. So same concept though it's an encryption at logarithm it doesn't really matter basically the concept is it's it's the encryption used to validate the data integrity um so my apologies um <laughs> and and i deserve crap for not using the latest and greatest um one of the other things that i wanted to talk about and i mentioned this is kind of a, a focused heavily on the smb spaces we do work with a lot of banks and as nate mentioned you were talking in that space uh I just kind of mm -hmm. want to clarify, um, we do see a lot of times where the examiners are coming in and they're saying, what do you do in this particular case? Show us, prove it, et cetera. 
But the reason why this can become really important is a lot of times those smaller banks will use a core banking app that's provided by another vendor. <clears throat> and, and this is true for in other spaces as well. You'll tend to have a lot of legacy applications out there. And unfortunately, the way the world used to work, as I mentioned, you had access to everything is they were written to require administrative requirements. So, uh, for example, there is uh, a banking application out there called Maui and Maui does a reference and a call to an outside application that says, I need access to run this additional application to run a batch file. Kind of a really poor design in today's world, unfortunately, but you still go through the process of saying, is this legitimate, valid, can so on and so forth. And we can define the tool in the PAM to say, in this one instance, I will allow that to happen. Mm -hmm. And so that tool will help with the automation with it. So as Nate was mentioning earlier, you do have some tools that are doing things that would, in the cybersecurity world, look incredibly malicious and scary. And we can still lock it down, but still remove the friction of saying, okay, the admin has to look at this every single time because A, the IT guy doesn't want to do it and people don't want to be slowed down. So there are instances where we see that. And again, in, in the SMB space in general, you'll see it with other legacy apps as well. So that's where tools like this come into play. Yeah, and that's that's definitely one of the biggest things that um, we see from the security side over here at CIT is the core banking applications. It seems like every single one of them <laughs> requires local admin permissions to be able to execute, um, which then the banks are tied into a hard spot where they say, well, I need to still allow my users to work and I can't spend my entire day just inputting credentials to allow them to work because I'm already bogged down. But then on the other side, you have your auditors coming in saying, remove local admin, otherwise you're not compliant. Um, and so that's that's where the tool comes into play, really reduces a lot of that. There's other protections that you could put in play. And I've worked with other banks that you put in, you know, for example, protected users security group. That's a great way to mitigate that prior attack that I was talking about. However, what that happens is now when the auditors also say, do you have multi-factor on your network switches? Well, guess what? That breaks. Uh, and so that's where the PAM solution then comes right back into play saying, we can put in this proper security controls to support both the network infrastructure and multi-factor, as well as removing local admin. It helps maintain uh, the internal compliance and your auditors. And um, it, it's a really phenomenal tool. And then going back to Todd's point about the least privilege is that, um, you only have to grant elevated permissions to the particular process or application that's trying to run. Um, so installing a new printer driver, installing a new driver update for your Wi-Fi card, um, anything like that, right, is you can let the tool get out of the way while still providing the same security value or even maturing the organization at the same time. Yeah, the maturing the organization is a great point. And we've talked about it about banks in the past anyway, but it, it's a really good point just because occasionally we will see banks will be somewhat reluctant to put some tools in place. And there's reasons for it, but the majority of it is they're on a maturity path and it is what it is. And so a lot of times a bank will go, well, why am I forced to do all of these things? I'm not Wells Fargo, I'm not US Bank. And, and quite frankly, they are often held to those types of standards. And while the examiners may not come to them and say, well, I expect you to act exactly like Wells, the compliance that they're going through does apply. And so when you run into some of those issues and concerns of, do I really need to do this? 
Well, at some point, the, the examiners are going to ask. But in the case where privilege access management comes into play, there is another reference back to our, our SMB episode. It's required for insurance, too. You're starting to really see that come into play a lot as well. So banks still do their cybersecurity insurance as well. It's still part of their playbooks when they do their incident response plans as well. Mm-hmm. And so it, it is something that we're starting to see being asked, and it's not even an ask so much anymore. It's starting to quickly become a requirement. Yeah. I think one thing I might just toss into the mix as well, and then uh, I can tell that the marketing team probably wants to ask a question. So um, the the last thing I'd maybe add out is I should probably also call out the term application whitelisting. Um, and so they, they go hand in hand. So application whitelisting is the concept of only allowing software to run if it's previously approved. Um, And then what that does is it also pairs in with the privilege access management saying, if I need to install something that's not approved or I need to run one of the existing applications with elevated permissions, um, then you can apply different policies on there. But application whitelisting is really, really critical to the banks as well. And they do pair together. And the reason why is you know, this is fairly old now, um, but Zeus was a famous banking Trojan. So it's been used and adapted many, many times over the years. But essentially what that was doing was someone clicks on something malicious, you know, in an email uh, or downloads an attachment with a malicious payload. From there, there's a Zeus Trojan, which would then intentionally watch web pages and try and scrape sensitive data as the tellers and everyone was inputting this sensitive info um, where the application whitelisting comes into play is if that wasn't previously approved or signed for by an already approved vendor that has no chance to run in the environment therefore now you're protecting the customer data as well um, and so it I just want to call out Zeus because it is by far the most famous um, piece of malware that's ever hit the financial industry. And it's all part of the same tool <laughs> to protect it. Yeah, so so a lot of the tools out there are are multifaceted. They have a lot of functions. And, and you know, as typical, when we talk about these things, there are tools that we know of. We'd be happy to talk about them further if you've got questions about it, which we'll make a small plug of letting us know if you got questions. Um, but there are some that are really, really good, and they do provide a lot of additional functionality, and you get a lot of bang for your buck. And, and the, the app whitelisting, or in some cases it's called ring fencing, those tools will, will come into play as well, and they are very important, especially when it comes to your defense in depth strategies that a lot of the banks are employing. That's so I, I was kind of waiting for the questions. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh, you're <laughs> good. I saw Ariel go off mute at the same time. I was like, do you mind I, if I throw one out to them? Yeah, for sure. Sweet. Um, so just as you guys are talking through it, I know previously we've had discussions a little bit about, right, you're sold on it. You understand the technology. Everything's mm-hmm. all good. You go to implement it. Is this something, A, that you can implement yourself? And what does that look like? What are the pros and cons there? Or B, is this one of the tools that you go, yeah, you don't even want to get in the weeds there. Just have somebody else install it for you. Yes. Uh, Yeah, I was going to (laughs) say, it's depending on what solution you're looking for, um, right? And so this is where I'm going to try and be really agnostic to whatever solution you're looking for. 
um, right? But there's the the free solutions. So Microsoft has the App Locker, right? They provide that for free. Um, that is part of their application whitelisting. They've now introduced another privilege access management solution. Um, that's a license uh, that you can buy from Microsoft there. So you have some cost, but with a solution like AppLocker, you're likely having a lot of that internal manual labor. So if you have the team that can support it, you can go through all of your devices, start inventorying and start building those policies um, to apply all these different permissions. Um, that's a one opportunity. There's other ones that, you know, Todd mentioned the UAC prompt. So when you're trying to elevate, all it's doing is intercepting that to where you would normally put in administrative username and password. That's a little bit less labor intensive, but now you might be looking at continually having to approve every request that comes through, uh, even if it's a common update. Um, and then it doesn't really look across the entire organization if anyone else previously had that installed. Um, then at the some of the upper echelons of these types of tools, you have tools that will automatically scan an inventory. Um, and then you can put in all these fancy policies saying maybe I only want to allow that policy to run for one hour and then just get rid of the rule, right? The tool will have a lot of automation built into there as well. Um, so it's really a trade-off, right? Is as you start moving that direction, you're going to either start paying for instead of labor and no licensing into licensing and no labor, or potentially you're even looking at a solution where maybe you don't even want to do the approval request. You need to have a first pass at that with another vendor like CIT. There's solutions like that where we can be the first line of a um, defense on those approvals saying, we know that this is potentially malicious or we know it's a common web application such as Zoom or Teams or WebEx that we can just get in there and approve it more at the global level to ensure that it doesn't impact you uh, right off the bat. Because if you do use a tool that's managed by another service provider like CIT, we do see many, many, many different networks. And so we can say, well, we saw customer A requested this yesterday let's approve it up at the global level because it's not malicious therefore when your team tries to do it it's already approved and the impact is mitigated so yeah i was going to echo that last piece as well as to answer the question about as simply as i could do it is it, it does depend on on your wherewithal and your bandwidth and what you're willing to take on. So they can be relatively easy and they can also be incredibly complex. Um, the part where Nate got into someone like a CIT is we work with a lot of banks and and it's probably no surprise that the banks will say, well, what do you typically see? And that that's where you'll see a lot of value come in where we can go, here's your quote unquote checklist that we can help you through. We know X, Y, and Z. We're just going to go ahead and allow you to do the Adobe suite because we know it's fine, right? We know that you're going to potentially, if you're using the Maui app, it's going to act like this. So we can kind of preempt a lot of those things and just streamline it. And then, yeah, there are some tools that have some great automation in them as well. So I think we focused a lot on banks um, and and if if somebody's listening to this and they work for a different kind of like financial institution, is there any um, different kinds of challenges or best practices 
for them or is it just kind of same across the board? Same across the board for the most part. I mean, some of the biggest differences that you see in banks is they are heavily regulated. So there are compliance reasons why one way or another, they they quote unquote get forced down a certain path. It's as I mentioned, we're asking Wells to do this. You get to do it, too. That being said, um, in case anybody doesn't know, I'm sure you do. If you're in a financial industry, you're aware of it. But whether you're being regulated by the FTC because you're doing personal loans or whatever, the requirements are still the same and the protections are still the same. You just need to be not having the screws held to you in the same manner that that the banks are. Um, but all of the requirements all more or less end up being the same. So we talk about this fairly often in this meeting too, or meeting, sorry, in the podcast, um, where we talk about how there are different types of compliance. There's FTC, there's CMMC, there's the FDIC, et cetera, et cetera they're all getting to the same thing and the intent is to guarantee the cia triad confidentiality integrity and availability of your data and your customers right so the whole point of everything is based on that and so it doesn't really matter which one of those compliances you're under they're all getting to the same things and so a lot of times the tools and the reasoning and the methodology is the same yeah i'd say probably the major differences it would mainly be which applications are you going to allow right so we we know that as you remove local admin permissions you're still going to need some type of elevated access to run driver updates or you know new printers stuff like that so that is widely consistent it's just like todd mentioned who's regulating you and then for those that aren't re- regulated we still say find one that fits so whether or not it's whether or not it's like the NIST cybersecurity framework uh COVID, there's a ton of uh, ones out there that you can follow but you know NIST cybersecurity framework says maybe a, a decent one to at least start on because it's fairly easy to understand as well but if you don't have something you should still be pushing towards the same security standards as everyone else because a lot of these organizations are saying or you know regulations and sorry not maybe not regulations but standards that are coming out are saying do you hold your vendors to the same standards as your own company so for example if a bank is working with an organization that doesn't have great security standards you'd be listed as a high risk to the bank um, and therefore they may not want to do business with you so everyone collectively over time is starting to hold each other accountable to these security standards uh, and so we see that with some of the manufacturing right is manufacturing was historically fairly slow to adopt new technology that's different with technology and you know iot all of that is rapidly increasing um, but you have to have the same security standards because you know your customers you know if you're delivering to someone like a general contractor they want a building still within four months if your networks are down you might not be able to deliver on that so they might hold you to the same standard yeah it, one wanna... what one tiny little thing i wanted to add on there because it made it gave me an aha that um if you are a subcontractor of a bank when when they um flag the high risk component if you're in a bank you already know this but if anybody else is just listening along banks are required to have an exit strategy for all their vendors so if you are falling into that high risk category just be aware that there is an exit strategy that they're already working on um and it, it's it, it does behoove you to to pay attention and make sure that you're you're crossing your t's and dotting your i's 
I was just going to say kind of along those lines of any of our past podcasts, we've talked about, you know, MFA and, and EDR of that multi-layer approach for security. And so in kind of talking today and we're talking about banks, so if they have, M, you know, MFA, EDR and now PAM, like summarize that a little bit. If that's just another layer of that, you know, approach and ensuring that their landscape is kind of covered. Um, so I want to kind of know a little bit more about that of just that layered piece. I, this is going to be me nerding out here. And so for those that aren't on video, I'm going to hold up a book uh, because I love the book and I do this all the time, but I've got a book called The Cyber Defense Matrix. So this is a great book if you're ever trying to figure out if your tools are overlapped or, you know, why, why on earth should I throw another security tool into my security stack, right? And so it the, we I talked already about the NIST cybersecurity framework. So there's a couple pillars of it. It's in a revision, so you might see an update soon on that. But the first two stages of it are identify what you have, right? And then the next one is protect what you have. So you can't protect what you don't know that you already have. And then the goal is to really focus on protecting the assets because the next stage is detect. So that's post-security incident, right? So all of, sorry, not all, but most of the effort should be heavily, heavily focused on identifying the resources and data that you have and how to protect it. There And then there are different categories. So for example, how do we protect our devices? How do we protect the data? How do we protect the network traffic? How do we protect our user accounts? Multi-factor might only protect the user accounts. It doesn't necessarily do anything for network traffic or the applications that are running in the environment. We have things like EDR or MDR, XDR, whatever acronyms you want. You can go back and listen to all the acronyms on the previous podcast there. But those are protecting more of the devices and some of the applications. Where we start getting into the PAM is protecting elevated sessions, protecting the applications that are installed on the devices before you have to rely on your EDR, because again, that's already post-security incident. So. That's my deep dive, but Cyber Defense Matrix, I've read this book many, many times and uh, not sponsored, but I should maybe seek out a sponsorship. So And and you can find it on Amazon, um, <laughs> anywhere that books are sold near you. Uh, yeah, so to answer your question, unfortunately, it isn't as simple as if I do these three things, I'm good to go when it comes to banks and banks know this, um, which, which actually leads to a really good kind of segue, if you will, to another potential question of how do you keep up on all this? Um, there are plenty of people out there. This podcast is a great resource, obviously, in our opinion, because, hey, it's us. Um, but we did. the answer is obviously that that just is not enough. You, there's so many components of cybersecurity, unfortunately. Um, but but Nate nailed it, right? I mean, that was a great overview. It's not as simple as I put in a tool and I'm good to go. It's I got to protect the users by training them. I got to talk to my customers and make sure that they are aware that I'm never going to just send them a note that says I changed your ACH account. That stuff is it's really in-depth and there's all kinds of it. The reality is fraudsters are incredibly clever and they're going to do everything they can to get your money. Yeah, for sure. So, I mean, I I kind of thought in my head, oh, if we could, you know, kind of order these in in what's most important. But I mean, across the board, they're working together and, and mm -hmm. it's so important to have all of these pieces together. Um, if you had to 
just for a future podcast idea, if you had to add another piece, so we got the MFA, we got the EDR, and now we're talking about Pam. Um, what's kind of the next <laughs> alphabet the soup piece? Yeah, it what's it's the kind of? It depends. It depends um, it, that people should watch out for. Yeah, unfortunately, I would say it does depend because everybody's in a different space. And I mean, everybody, there is not one bank that I've said you are exactly like this other bank. So everybody is in their own space and they're at their own portion of the journey. And so everybody's in a different spot. But, you know, Sam is way up there. Um, mm-hmm. I can throw in some other acronyms, too, because we got I, I don't have my acronym dictionary up. Let me see if I can yeah. pull it up real quick. <laughs> we we did miss the April 1st. Uh, we'll, we'll just read acronyms for an hour, um, <laughs> maybe next year. But the my answer for that one is probably great you got multi-factor you got edr you got pam there's still a lot of fundamentals where if you don't have it you have to tackle the fundamentals first because that is the stuff that's the most easily exploited so i could start talking about backups and you know everything like that um if i was to look a little more of what's the future look like is it's going to be and I'm not going to, I hate this term at times, but the zero trust model, right? And trying to remove the trust that's built from, you know, maybe it's branch to branch, right? So maybe you have a Minneapolis office and you have a Chicago office or, you know, that stuff. Oftentimes banks start putting VPNs between the two. So their software can interact with each other. Um, I don't love that approach, right? If one branch gets compromised, you can move over to the next one, compromise that one, and just um, further the attack there. So one of the things that CIT has placed very, very heavily focused, even here at our organization, uh, and this is where the the acronym comes in, is SASE. This is a, a phenomenal thing that's been coming out for the last, I mean, it's been out for a long time, maybe 10 years, but really starting to gain traction in the last two or three and this is bringing a zero trust approach to all the web traffic that you have, the interconnections between your sites, how are the sites connecting to your critical data, right? And it's not just a simple VPN tunnel. It can check, do I have EDR installed? Is that user authorized? You know, are they maybe paired with some type of certificate for additional trust? Um, that would be the future. A lot of places aren't there yet. Today, start with the blocking and tackling of the basics. Love it. Love it. Basics, fundamentals, most important things, a web weaved together. And uh, Mm -hmm. if you have questions or you want to talk to somebody about um, Pam or EDR or MFA, um, I'll make sure all of our podcasts are linked in this uh, description, but definitely reach out to us at info at cit-net.com or head up to our website at cit-net.com slash podcast. Uh, thank you, Todd and Nate, for joining us today, and we'll be back next week with an all-new episode.